Hello, and welcome to We Live for Saturday, your favorite college football podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike, and with me as always is your other co-host, John. John, how are you doing this evening? Doing okay. I'm a little tired. Um, I feel like I'm always tired when I'm recording these podcasts because I just I'm always busy and doing things late. Um, get, took a big trip. Actually, saw you uh, just uh, yesterday. I was in Minneapolis and uh, doing some house hunting, uh, looking to move back next year. So it's exciting stuff. You know, still got a little ways to go until we get there uh, with my fiance and I. But we'll, you know, we'll eventually be able to pull the trigger. So that was fun, man. It was good to hang out too. Yeah, dude, it was great seeing you. That was wild to see you in the flesh. Yeah, <laughs> not just through my computer screen. Exactly. Awesome. All right. Well, before we get into these games, it was a huge week eight of games. Um, we should address the Michigan situation quickly. Yeah. So right now, um, with all the sign stealing accusations, um, right now with, uh, with the, with the, uh, employee at Michigan, there are allegations coming really quickly and there you see them reporters coming out with all kinds of stuff on Twitter right now. So we don't want to go too far into discussing this matter until we have more information. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the way I, I, we should handle it at this point in time. I think there's a lot of things, obviously, you know, people already are speculating on the situation. Um, I think there's, you know, if there's any truth to this matter, you know, um, it's right to acknowledge the gravity of it. But at the same time, uh, I don't really want to report too much on it until we get some facts and some evidence. Yeah, some of these uh, some of these allegations are eyebrow raising stuff, but until we know for sure what's real and what's not, we don't want to get into it. So, yeah. you know, Michigan continues to face and, and Jim Harbaugh continue to face these sign stealing accusations. And we will update that as, you know, as information becomes a little more concrete. Yeah. All right. Well, should we get into these games? Let's get into the games. There's a lot to go over here. We have a lot to talk about for sure. All right. First up, we had the Ohio State Buckeyes 20, the Penn State Nittany Lions 12. Total yards, Penn State had 240 to Ohio State's 365. Both teams had success passing the ball, although Ohio State was far more efficient than Penn State was. Rushing-wise, both teams averaged just 1.9 yards per rush. Ohio State was more committed to running the ball, though running they ran it uh, 41 times to 35 pass attempts. By contrast, Penn State had 42 pass attempts and just 26 rushing attempts, which must have been frustrating for the team that came into this game leading the Big Ten in rushing offense. For Penn State, Drew Aller was just 18 for 42 for 191 yards, one TD and zero picks for a QBR of just 29.4. So not a very efficient nor explosive night from Aller. Uh, 4.5 yards per attempt is just not good enough to get it done in a big game like that when you're when you need points. For Ohio State, Kyle McCord was an impressive 22 for 35 for 286 yards on 8.2 yards per attempt. Uh, one TD, zero picks, and a QBR of 87.2, which is really solid. So Kyle McCord played pretty well. I mean, he left some throws out there for sure, but still, you look at that stat line, he really played well. 
Um, Nicholas Singleton broke a lone 20-yard run, but besides that, neither team excelled in the run game. Mayan Williams had 24 largely unsuccessful carries for Ohio State. Penn State's wide receivers didn't do much damage. Keandre Lambert-Smith had six grabs for 52 yards, but other than that, nobody had more than two catches as the Nittany Lions offense was largely held in check. For Ohio State, Marvin Harrison is once again the hero with 11 catches for 162 yards and a TD. He had a 35-yard grab at one point against that stout Nittany Lions D. Dude is an absolute marvel. Um, worth pointing out, the tight end Cade Stover also had a solid day um, with four grabs for 70 yards. Ohio State needed chunk plays in the passing game to win, and they got chunk plays in the passing game to win. Uh, Buckeye safety Sonny Styles had four tackles and a sack in the winning effort. Um Penn State needed 58 minutes to convert a third or fourth down and didn't get into the end zone until 29 seconds were left in the game. Penn State failed to convert on its first 15 third down attempts. I'm not sure. uh, Sorry, quote. I'm not sure if we just didn't watch two of the best teams in college football, specifically on the defensive side of the ball. Unquote. Penn State coach James Franklin said he added, quote, the story of the game came down to third down. We weren't able to stay on the field, which was the biggest difference in the game. Close quote. John, what did you think about this one? Well, dude, this was... First off, I want to just acknowledge that you were absolutely correct um, that when it I came to Ohio State. <laughs> you were spot on, dude. You were, you were spot on when it came to the fact that, yes, uh, Ohio State has Marvin Harrison Jr. They have the explosive factor. Um, and so that basically made the difference there. Uh, and it really did. Um, you know, otherwise, I mean, these were two very evenly matched teams defensively, just incredible. Uh, it oh, was yeah. so ridiculous. Um, but, you know, I think what I saw, like Aller, you know, and, and, you know, credit to Ohio State's defense, Aller just seemed out of sync all day. He just didn't seem to be able to put things together. Um, you know, obviously, they didn't have the explosive plays that that were going to get them. Uh, you know, to keep the game competitive enough. Um, and yeah, they were having just a hell of a time running the ball. So I, I also saw that the O-line, you know, just like just you saw Aller, you know, trying to avoid the pressure all day. And the O-line just was not able to continue to keep up, uh, you know, with the protect the pass pro um, throughout the game. And still and a little bit of issues, you know, even with like uh, with his accuracy and with it, the receivers coming down with the ball. Um, it was uh they were, you know, I, I thought they would come into this game being either very, you know, uh, more, more in sync, more, um, Penn State or Ohio State, you Penn said- State, okay. Penn State. Yeah. Um, but I thought they would be more methodical and more together. Um, it just looked like they were playing some of the best football in the big 10 other than, uh, Michigan, um, because of the consistency that they've been playing at, but, it just came all it just didn't happen didn't happen here and it really you know ohio state just kind of came out came out on top and you saw mccord look fantastic i still think he's absolutely underrated um you know i am a little confused though with ryan day's decision to keep running the wildcat in the red zone with devin brown i i don't know i don't know what he's doing there i don't know how that helps you at all I don't get it. I mean, okay, cool. Like you've got a little wrinkle to your offense, but like, why? You're announcing that you're running the ball though. Yeah. You know, they uh, virtually, I mean, they just about, I, I know they have thrown out of that 
out of that set with um with Devin Brown, but they're pretty much announcing you're running the ball. And I just hate that because yes, you do does give you, you know, if your quarterback's a threat to run, that does give you a, somewhat of a numbers advantage, but that's negated. If the defense knows when you're running quarterback is running the ball and they can commit everybody to the box and attack that. So I don't, I don't like them doing that at all. I'm, I'm with you on that one, John. Yeah, that that just continues to, you know, befuddle me. I don't know why that's that is something he continues to draw up. Um, I'm not sure what the benefit is. But then again, Ryan Day, you know, is a much more intelligent football mind than I am. Um, So I I assume there's some method to his madness. Uh, But yeah, man, um, honestly, though, Ohio State's defense you know, their secondary, their pass rush. I mean, everything about them defensively and offensively was just sound and it was really good. And yeah, you know, yeah, of course, like you said, McCord, you know, he left some, some, uh, some throws out there on the field, but like, I think overall, you know, you look at his stats and he, he was incredible. Yeah. I mean, he left some throws out there, but he still ended up what, like 22 for 35. I mean, yeah. that's really, really good. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought he and Aller in the first half both left some throws out there. Yeah. And I thought McCord played better in the second half. And, you know, Aller still struggled. It's interesting coming into this game, John. We thought it was the Penn State pass rush that was going to dominate this game. Yeah. We thought it was that Ohio State O-line that had deficiency potentially. And that it was the Penn State pass rush that was going to take control and potentially you know, if Penn State was going to win the game, that that was going to be a big part of the story. And Ohio State just flipped the script on that. I mean, Ohio State was living in the backfield, just doing whatever they wanted to do all the time. So that was really impressive. Um, I thought Penn State, I got really frustrated with James Franklin watching this game, John. I was, I wrote down at the time, I was like, Penn State, you lead the Big Ten in rushing. What are you doing? Run the ball. Penn State did not commit to running the ball the way Ohio State did. And Mm -hmm. it's really strange in this game that Penn State only ran it 26 times. And I'll say that it was a mistake because Nick Singleton was running the ball well, yet he only Mm -hmm. got nine carries. He had 5.3 yards per attempt on nine carries. Dude should have had 20 plus carries, not nine. What do you do? I just don't understand. It's like you look like you have an advantage. You can run the ball. Nick Singleton is running the ball well. You're playing against a great Ohio State defense. Why wouldn't you run the ball a little bit? Ohio State had a much more suspect running game coming in, and they committed to running the ball more than Penn State did. And that that shocked me because usually Ryan Day is a guy who can talk himself out of running the ball. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he's usually a guy who will he'll show up. And if, if things go a certain way, he'll throw a lot of passes and not worry about it. But in this game, Day was kind of dogged in his commitment that he was going to run the ball a certain amount of the time. I mean, they still passed it a lot, too, obviously. Yeah. But he was going to run the ball a certain amount of time. And I think that that was a tactical error. Penn State throwing the ball so much and not depending on Singleton when he was running the ball well. Yeah, it, it is odd. You know, you you've got a proven running back. You've got uh, you know, an offensive line that can create holes and you can be effective running. You've been effective. Um, you know, but we've seen that, you know, throughout the Big Ten. Um, and it always is odd when you see these coaches move away from what works. Uh I get it, you know, maybe in certain situations or, you know, certain parts of the game, um, to just mix it up, but like 
or open up the pass game. But when you have something that is clearly working in your favor, uh, you know, I just don't I don't understand why why all of a sudden you change your whole offensive scheme. Yeah, James Franklin, his in-game decision making like continues to perplex me a lot. Yeah. And that's and I, going all the way back to when he had Trace McSorley playing the game of his life against Ohio State, and it was fourth and five, and he handed the ball off. And I'm like, yeah, Saquon Barkley's great, but like, put the ball in your star senior quarterback's hands on fourth and five. Let him decide if he's going to run or throw or whatever. Anyway, that's me getting into a totally different game. But the point is, over the years, James Franklin has chances in games like these, yep. and he makes strange coaching decisions. There was a there was a third and five in this game too when he handed the ball off too. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, "What are you doing, man? Well, you want to like, play to get the first down at least? Come on!" It, well, it's like a psychological block that he has. Like you know, Penn State's just always been living in the shadow of Ohio State and Michigan. You know, mainly Ohio State. You know, but like uh, until Michigan recently, obviously is now you know what it is. Um, it's always been great, but it's you know, now on a whole nother level. Um, but Penn State and, and James Franklin—that's always been his issue, and you hear it from the fan base. You know, and and it's not. You know, this isn't the first time that we've talked about this. You know, and I, I think that this continues to plague him. I don't know if it's the pressure. I don't know what it is. Um, obviously you and I also understand what that's like with a head coach. Cause we've experienced that in our own right. Yeah. But it's infuriating dude. And I, I just fail to understand. Yeah. Um, ultimately for me, Penn state came in with the number two scoring defense in the nation, but well, they did pretty well against Ohio state and shut down the Buckeye running game. They couldn't contain Marvin Harrison and Cade Stover in key moments, which led to a defeat that was more convincing than what the final score said, because Penn State really did score at the very end. I didn't feel like Penn State was a threat to score on Ohio State for much of that game. No, I didn't either. Like by the time we got to the second half, I didn't feel like Penn State was a threat anymore offensively. Like it seemed like Ohio State had just figured them out and they were just too much up front. Um yeah, I got to give it up for that that Buckeye that Buckeye defense, man. I mean, we have to start talking about the Buckeyes. You know, forget them being third; they're ahead of Penn State now. And yeah. I think we need to talk about them in that same category we talk about the Michigan defense in. Absolutely, I think they deserve it at least at least to be in that conversation. Yeah, because what they've done, and obviously Ohio State, Michigan's been the best team in the Big Ten on the field, but Ohio State's played the toughest schedule of the contenders. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, beating Notre Dame and now the way they beat Penn State was just really, really impressive. Yep. Um, you have to give it up for Ryan Day and the Buckeyes. They really have it rolling right now. With the win, the Ohio State Buckeyes moved to 7-0. and With the loss, the Penn State Nittany Lions dropped to 6-1. and All right, moving on to the next game on our slate. We had Rutgers 31, Indiana 14. Total yards, Rutgers had 315 to IU's 279. IU had the more balanced offense between run and pass, but Rutgers racked up a gaudy 276 rushing yards to lead the Scarlet Knights to victory. Gavin Winsett had a rough day passing the ball for Rutgers with just 39 yards passing on 5 for 12 attempts. That's just 3.3 yards per attempt and under 50% completion percentage. So that's rough. So how did Wimsat lead Rutgers to victory? He did it with his legs. He had 16 carries for 143 yards, including an 80-yard TD run, which I did not know Gavin Wimsat was fast enough to outrun the whole defense for 80 yards. Yeah. Like, 
you can be quick and you can make it for 20, 30, maybe even 40 yards, right? But you need real speed to finish that whole race. And it was wild watching him just continue um, to do that. I remember I saw JT Barrett do that once in his Ohio State days. And yeah. uh, and and just like for like us, you know, for an 80 plus yard run. And I was just like, whoa, I did not know he had those wheels. So I did not not know Gavin Wimsat had those wheels. Well, Wimsat, and it's funny when you watch him run, like he he's just got such a long stride. So maybe it's deceiving. You don't think he's that fast, but yeah. He he just glides when he's gone. So yeah, that's yeah, a good man. way to describe it. Absolutely. Um, star running back Kyle Manungai. Oh yeah, Wimsat also had three TDs on the ground, and he didn't throw any interceptions. So at least there was that. Star running back Kyle Manungai for Rutgers had 109 yards of his own on a solid 4.5 yards per rush. Uh, between Wimsat and Manungai, Rutgers got it done rushing the ball. By contrast, for IU, Brennan Sorsby was just 15 for 31 for 126 yards on 4.1 yards per attempt, one TD and zero picks. IU ran the ball decently well with Howland, Sorsby, and Lucas, but it wasn't enough to overcome the rushing onslaught from Rutgers or the special teams mistakes, which zapped Indiana's momentum at a critical point of this game in the first quarter. So here's what happened. The Hoosiers had a great opening TD drive. Rutgers had an equally impressive TD drive to answer. We've got a tie game, and I'm thinking, hey, this is going to be a great game. We've got two teams that are evenly matched. Offense has got off on the right foot, et cetera. Then on the next possession, Indiana gives up a blocked punt touchdown. So that's a great play by Rutgers, right? Like, good for Rutgers. They got a, they blocked a punt, scored a touchdown. That's incredible. But that is inexcusable from Indiana. You cannot be giving up block punts. So now the Hoosiers have to play from behind down 14-7. Soresby's looked a little better than Taven Jackson, I thought, for the Hoosiers. So I thought, you know, I thought he showed a little bit of an improvement in their QB play. Um, And like we said, the Hoosiers had some success in the running game, but they just couldn't sustain scoring drives. I use muffed punt. Still, though, despite that, I use muff pun is the only reason the Hoosiers trail 17-14 at half. It should have been tied. Mm-hmm. So that's two special teams mistakes Indiana made in the first half, which led directly to 10 points for Rutgers in a game they were trailing 17-14 at half. So you can do the math with that, with giving them that, giving up 10 points on those two special teams errors. Um, that's rough, given how well IU played in the in the first half. Um, Rutgers coach Greg Shiano said to the players in the locker room, this is a big, big step for the program. There's no doubt about it. It's been a while since this program has been bowl eligible. What did I say? Close quote. The players then erupted into cheers because it's been since 2014 since Rutgers has been bowl eligible. Um, for Rutgers linebacker, Mohamed Toure at seven tackles, including a tackle for loss. So John, what did you think watching this one? Well, it was another disappointing performance where you saw some life early on from Indiana, but then it just, you know, quickly fades away. I mean, they um, should have been up at half. Yeah, they should have. Yeah, they really should have, uh, but they shot themselves in their in the foot. Um, and, you know, I, I agree. I think Soresby looked a lot better. I also didn't know, like, he, he looked more mobile in this game than I've seen him in, in the past. I think he, he's got some good quick yeah. feet. Um, he throws an accurate ball. I, I think he's got a lot of potential there, but... You know, um, unfortunately, though, like he he definitely didn't have a lot of uh, great protection from his offensive line. That, you know, hence why he was he was scrambling all around. But he 
he impressed me. He he looks good. He is definitely, you know, he should be the starter and he should be the starter here from here on out. So I hope they continue to roll with him. Um, and defensively, you know, they had, they had some, they had, they showed some flashes um, here and there, you know, they did a good job. I think overall containing Manongai, like he, he, he looked like he wasn't able to, you know, be as explosive as he he usually is. Uh, uh, but you know, he had to, he really the, had to work for his yards. He did, but on the flip side, you know, they just could they had just a hell of a time dealing with the design QB runs with with Wimsat, you know, and and uh, that's really what broke everything away. And I and he looked great, man. I mean, Wimsat looked fantastic, and and adding that in there and just playing that kind of football um, for Rutgers is clearly working and. Not gonna, you know, not gonna be able to <laughs> to stay that. Not gonna be able to do that against every team. Um, no, you certainly know, not. But I think you know, for a team like Indiana, clearly, um, you know, you can make that work. So I think, like, what I saw, you know, offensively with with uh, with Rutgers was just that, you know, they f- they have their identity now. I know I wanted them to work a little bit more and get Wimsat to be able to throw a little bit better. Um, he does, you know, have some flashes here and there, but I know that's still going to be an issue down the line um, and probably going to cost him a couple games. But defensively, though, dude, they look solid. They continue to look solid early on. Yeah, they had yeah they had a couple blown coverages, but like they quickly recovered and they were getting pressure on Soresby all day. And, and man, dude, they are punishing like they like Toure, like just had this massive hit that you just hear from the, you know, all through from the TV. And it was just it was brutal. And you're just watching this team and they swarmed they swarmed to the ball. They are just a solid unit and they're cohesive. And man, I mean, I'm thoroughly impressed with what's going on at, at Rutgers defensively there. And so. You know, it's it just it sucks. You know, it sucks for Indiana. Um, you know, with that muff punt, and then with the 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 blocked punt. You know, the special teams issues and cannot happen. It can't happen. No, it can't because it, it could have been a lot win games in the Big Ten. Yeah, it could have been closer, and who knows? Maybe Indiana could have pulled something off. But that's it. Yeah, that kind of stuff kills you every time. It really does. I agree with you, man. This Rutgers defense is really impressive, and they definitely lead the. You know. Rutgers right now is kind of what Iowa's trying to be. Yeah. You know, with the running game and the defense, you know, obviously both teams have the defense, but Rutgers has really has the running game working right now. Yep. And it's just, it's just, um, yeah, they're a good team, man. I think they're going to be tough. The Hoosiers, we got to talk about the Hoosiers. Yeah. Rutgers is going to be tough down the stretch. They're very good. Um, Indiana's now lost 11 of their last 12 games in the conference. Oof. That is unspeakably bad. And I don't even know what to say other than Hoosiers fans. Our hearts go out to you. You're a proud fan base and deserve better than this. I really hope IU can figure something out, whether that's with Tom Allen or a new coach. But right now, things are really, really bad. And yeah. there's just no good way to spin it at this point without a conf- single conference win in four tries. Yep. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I, I'm with you, man. I totally agree. Yeah. All right. With the win, the Rutgers Scarlet Knights are six and two, John. Yeah, I knew two. it. 
You called it. Yes, you yeah. called it in the preseason. You had them going, but even you didn't think they were going to be six and two. I didn't know they would be six and two, and I yeah. and and I didn't I didn't think they would actually possibly get to seven and five, which they very well could. Or who knows? Oh, yeah. You know, who knows? Seven, eight wins on the table. Could be. Yeah. And with the loss, the Indiana Hoosiers dropped to two and five. All right. Next game we're going to go into is uh, the number two Michigan Wolverines, 49. The Michigan State Spartans, zero. Total yards, Michigan had 477 to Michigan State's 182. Michigan was elite throwing the ball and okay running the ball, but more importantly, their defense terrorized Michigan State all night and made it impossible for the Spartans to do anything offensively. For Michigan QB J.J. McCarthy, he had another amazing day going 21 for 27, 287 yards, four TDs, zero picks on 10.6 yards per attempt. John, we say it every week, but this guy is incredible. And it's time if they're not seriously talking about him for the Heisman, it's time to seriously talk about JJ McCarthy for the Heisman race. Absolutely. I don't, I don't love talking about end of year awards in the middle of the season, but it's, you know, we're getting to November and or close to November. And I think it's, it's, it's past time. We had that conversation yeah. um, because what he's doing is just unbelievable. Blake Corum did not have a great game though, as he had just 59 yards on 3.9 yards per rush. Uh, the Michigan run game was not its usual dominant self. The Spartans really sold out to stop the run, which led the Wolverines to lean on the passing game. Receiving tight end Colston Loveland was the star with two TDs on four catches for 79 yards. Uh, tight end AJ Barner had a great day with eight catches for 99 yards. Nobody else had more than three catches as Roman Wilson and Cornelius Johnson had quieter than usual days. Um, they didn't need their contributions to they didn't need their top contributors, though, to put up big numbers against Sparty. They just they didn't. That wasn't necessary. So for Michigan, uh, defensive end Derek Moore had four tackles, including a sack. He played really well and was in the backfield all night. Um, for Michigan State, Caden Hauser was just 12 of 22 for 101 yards on a paltry 4.6 yards per attempt, zero TDs and one pick which was returned 72 yards for a pick six because apparently Michigan state gets a pick six or two every single week. It seems like I know they don't actually, but it feels like they get one every week. (laughs) And then for Michigan state, Nathan Carter was shut down the running game with just 36 yards on 2.1 yards per rush. So John, what did you think about this game? Dude? I mean, look, I was watching this game and especially watching JJ McCarthy. And all I was thinking about is, you know, when you would play NCAA 14 and you would put it on freshman mode. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I felt like Michigan put Michigan state on freshman and it was just, and I, I'm sorry, Sparty fans. It, it was just tough, dude, and and he was. John, you think up... Sparty fans are still listening to a podcast after the probably week not? That? I wouldn't. I wouldn't if I were them. <laughs> I'd be taking the week off for sure. It 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 was it was some video game stats and some video game yeah. plays, and and again, and I and honestly, like I know we we've, we've talked about this before, but like JJ McCarthy is you he's so deceptively fast, and he's I know so we've said fast. it before. But like, oh my God, his escapability and, and like, and then running. I mean, like, I, again, that's what I mean. Like, like someone just pumped his stats up to 99 
And he's just like, he's doing whatever he wants. Cause they were, they did whatever they wanted to do. I know they had issues running the ball, but when it came to the passing game, it was just so easy. There was nothing that Michigan state could do to stop them. And then talking about defense, I mean, Jesus, holy cow, dude. I mean, it was so, it was tough, tough to watch. I felt really, really bad for Michigan state by the end of, you know, by the end of this game. Well, even at the, by the end of the half, it was, Oof, man. It looks dangerous playing against this Wolverine defense. It really does, dude. Like, like I'm like I get worried about the guys out there. Like, are they gonna be okay? Because this Michigan defense is so fast and so physical. Yeah. It's brutal, man. I and honestly, I don't know. Like right now. I know that there was uh, just a notification someone sent me. Um, I think I uh, yeah, I know I sent it to you as well about like one, you know, a player that that is uh already planning on transferring. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know. I, I know we've talked about it, about a possible exodus, you know, after the Michigan game. And we've seen someone already today uh, not saying I it's didn't think happen. it was going to happen, though. I yeah. never thought it was going to happen. And now we see a player apparently transfer. Let's see. Let, we should get it up who it was. Yeah. And this might just be a one off. You know, it could it be. Could be a one-off. Like, it could be it, just one guy for sure. But. You know, it is, it's cause for concern. It would definitely give me some pause and, you know, yeah, it was uh Michigan state redshirt junior defensive tackle, a Simeon Barrow jr. And yep. so, you know, I think it's just, it's just tough times in East Lansing, man. And I don't know what, where they're, what's, what's going to happen there. I don't know who they're going to go with for head coach. I assume they're already looking, um, you know, it is a good, it, it's a great program to be a part of. It, it's good job. It, it's in a tough situation right now, but it will definitely be a good job. Um, you know, it'll probably take a couple of years to to rebuild it. But um, that AD is a mess, though. Though that's something that yeah. you don't have at a normal. You know, it's not it's not just the Mel Tucker thing. That AD has been that athletic department for a long time has been a mess. So yeah, whatever coach is willing to take this job on, part of his you know part of what he'll have to do with the with the ad is figure out how to how to make sure the athletic department is functioning correctly too true so it's a it's a big thing man it's a big undertaking but it, it could definitely pay off it just may take a little while to get there but yeah. overall as far as the game goes I, I really i wish i had some good things to stay to say about sparty um you know i just hope you got out of there relatively healthy and, you know, just shut, you know, put this one away and just move on. That's it. Yeah. Without a running game, Caden Hauser was just running for his life from that Michigan front. And you can't, you can't operate when your O-line cannot hope to block the guys in front of them. And that's the situation when teams play Michigan right now, they're just on a totally different level. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see Michigan against Penn state or Ohio state to see, what it looks like when they're up against fronts that can match up to them a little better. Yep. Um, here's one for you, John, the Wolverines led 28 zero after two quarters, their largest lead in the series at halftime since going ahead by the same score in 1947. Wow. So why did I bring that up? Cause this is a historically good Michigan team Wolverine fans. So I hope yeah. you're enjoying this cause it's a rare thing to have a team this transcendent, it hasn't happened. Even the split national title team, I don't think was quite, I'd have to go back. I have to go back and look Michigan fans. So don't jump all over me, but from anecdotally, I don't think they were quite this dominant 
um this this team is yeah this team is wild so enjoy I feel, and i feel like this, this again and i and i know it's not happening on a national uh, i mean not that it's not getting the attention it deserves but the way everyone in college football talked about georgia last year is how they should be talking about michigan this year yes absolutely I don't think it's happening as much as the, as they that it should be though because of course, you know, it's Georgia's in the SEC, so. Yeah, exactly. But. All right, with the win, the Michigan Wolverines moved to 8 and 0 with the loss, the Michigan State Spartans dropped to 2 and 5. All right, next up, we had the Wisconsin Badgers 25, the Illinois Illini 21. John, this was on at the same time as the Minnesota game. And I was, you know, I had it on the other TV and I was looking and it was like, Illinois looked like they were in control, looked like they were in control. And then I got caught up watching the Gopher game and didn't really check in again. Mm-hmm. And then I went back later and was like, Wisconsin won. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that that happened. So then I went back and watched it again a little bit yesterday to get more caught up. And it was a wild it's a wild game, so I'm excited to get into it. Uh, total yards, Wisconsin at 379 to Illinois' 323. Both teams had some balance in their offenses, although Illinois leaned on the on the run game while Wisconsin threw more passes. For Wisconsin, QB Braden Locke was 21 for 41 for 240 yards on 5.9 yards per attempt, two TDs, and zero, most importantly, zero picks. Braylon Allen had a huge day with 145 yards rushing on five yards per rush and a TD. The Badgers rode Allen hard as nobody else got many carries. It was the Braylon Allen show, as we've seen so often before. Luke Fickle not worried about putting a lot of tread on Allen's tires, that's for sure. Uh, Will Pauling led Wisconsin with seven catches for 95 yards and a TD, while Skylar Bell had four for 53 yards. For Illinois, Luke Altmaier had an efficient but not explosive day with 100 yards passing on 13 for 21 attempts for just 4.8 yards per attempt, two TDs and zero picks. Altmaier also had 16 rushes for 100 yards. He was, I mean, Altmaier was the offense, folks. And that was a big part of Illinois' run game, along with Caden Fagan, who he did have 97 yards rushing on four yards per rush. Um, But nobody had a big day catching the ball for Illinois. The passing game was not great. For Wisconsin, Brain Locke threw a three-yard touchdown pass to offensive lineman Nolan offensive lineman Nolan Rucci with 27 seconds left Saturday, capping an 18-point fourth-quarter explosion by Wisconsin that gave the Badgers a stunning 25-21 Big Ten win over Illinois. Fickle said he saw a fire in his team in the fourth quarter that opened his eyes. When we were down 21-7, I'm sure a lot of people had their doubts that we could come back, Fickle said. For the first time in 10 months, I saw something from our guys in the fourth quarter that I hadn't seen before. Resilience, fight, and grit. Close quote. Um, Brett Brett Bielema, by contrast, for Illinois, said, I thought we did enough good things to win. We were locked in and we had a good game plan. Close quote. And ahead 14-7 at halftime, Illinois added to that lead with a 12-yard touchdown run in the third quarter by Fagan. Wisconsin had a 41-yard field goal. And a 20-yard pass from Locke to Will Pauling in the fourth quarter that was followed by a two-point conversion pass from Locke to Riley Nowakowski before Locke's TD pass to Rucci. So that's how Wisconsin pulled off the incredible uh, comeback. How did Illinois get ahead in the first place? They got an early turnover when Locke scrambled out of the pocket, was hit from behind by All-American Johnny Newton and fumbled. Miles Scott fell on the ball on the Illinois 46. That launched a drive that ended with a one-yard TD pass from Altmaier to a wide-open Tanner Arkin in the end zone. 
Um, John, this was a wild game. Oh, last thing I want to say, Wisconsin botched a scoring opportunity in the second quarter when the holder dropped the snap on a 27-yard field goal attempt and Illinois recovered. So this was a wild back and forth game all 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 uh afternoon long john what'd you think of this one yeah man yeah it absolutely was wild um i too uh was in a similar situation watching the gopher game and stopped paying attention to illinois wisconsin um and i i spent i think i actually spent the next like two hours um thinking that, that illinois beat wisconsin until yeah. uh I, no i, I thought at- i thought that it was a wrap yeah, and, until I think we spoke, and, and I and I and, and you were like, and you told me, and I was like, what? I had no I idea. I literally was about to message an Illinois fan, congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I literally I wrote congratulations on the big win, blah blah blah, and then I was like, I should go check the score. And I'm I, glad and you I did. was like, oh, delete that message. <laughs> Can't send that. Not what happened. Wisconsin, no, man. Wisconsin with a with an amazing comeback. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, and really like you saw what this came down to from, you know, you know, obviously I know a lot of people have already touched on this, but like, you know, when up until that point, you know, Jerzon Newton was incredible. He was all over the place. And up until the point where he, you know, the targeting call it, that's you just, the defense for Illinois just totally deflated. It changed the whole game. Yep. The moment he was a one man wrecking crew. He is that good. He is a first round pick. NFL draft pick yeah. kind of good. And he was just making it impossible for Wisconsin to do much. And after he went out of the game, Wisconsin scored, I think three times in a row to end the game, right? Yep. Yep. And had a field goal and two touchdowns. Yep. So, I mean, it really, you know, sometimes you can point to a single event in a game or it's not often you can point to a single event in a game and say that changed everything. But when Johnny Newton got ejected for targeting, that really changed everything. Absolutely. You know, and the rest of the defense, you know, the defensive line just, you know, he was the defensive line and he was he was doing everything. You know, I mean, the secondary was playing pretty well, I think, for about three quarters. And then, you know, the fourth quarter, like I said, the momentum, which I I do believe is a thing, is definitely uh, came into play. (laughs) Wisconsin just took advantage, man. They really did. And, you know, I mean, you even saw like offensively. Yeah, sure. There wasn't like a great passing game, but Altmaier, again, I think. Um, Illinois offensive line is giving him more time in the pocket, you know, but then he also is, he's able to create things with his legs. And, um, and so, you know, and Fagan continues to look a lot better as well. So they at least found some kind of uh, running game going on there. So that's helping, um, Illinois be more balanced as well. So taking some of that pressure and it looked like they were pretty solid, you know, they were being pretty methodical. They looked good, um, overall uh, throughout most of the game. Yeah, until the, the total collapse, you know, and we're looking and then, you know, talking about Wisconsin, you know, I was looking at them and I thought, you know, early on, uh, like, you know, the O-line looked like it was having some issues, um, you know, and, you know, with the when Locke got stripped, you know, and, and the uh, the fumble was recovered in the first and in the first quarter. And then he just kind of looked like he had some issues and his receivers weren't giving him what weren't doing him any favors either. There were a lot right. of drop balls in the in the first half. Um, but. Allen did Allen things and, you know, and, and what they did do, I saw that they got, they started getting him involved in the pass game more, which worked incredibly well. 
Yep. And that kind of also really gave that offense, you know, a little bit of life. So again, Allen is just carrying this offense entirely. Locke obviously started to look better, um, you know, in the second half and obviously in the fourth quarter, you know, once that momentum changed, uh, you know, and his receivers started to pull, you know, pull, t- pull together as well. So it, it just, it was a total momentum changer, man. You know, up until that point, you know, if, if that whole thing with the targeting didn't, didn't happen, you know, I, I would have said, you know, it looked pretty clear that Illinois was going to win this game, but yeah, that really changed everything just in a, in a heartbeat. It really did. And, and, you know, give credit to Wisconsin and their, you know, and their quarterback who's inexperienced making his first start mm-hmm. for Braden Locke to come out and play, you know, he wasn't amazing, but he was, he was really good when he needed to be really good. Absolutely. And to come and, and engineer three fourth quarter scoring drives. I mean, and he threw the game winner to an offensive lineman, <laughs> which is funny and, is. Awesome. and awesome. It's great. Oh, yeah. Legitimately Absolutely. great. But yeah, I mean, yeah, looking at my notes, I mean, I agree with you. You know, Altmeyer made plays with his legs, but having Fagan has made that, that offense a lot more balanced. But Braylon Allen just looked great. The lights weren't too bright for Braden Locke. Um, Illinois was not the same team after Johnny Newton was ejected. And and Phil Longo, man, called called when he needed to score his winning game winning touchdown. He called one to an offensive lineman. So that's a uh, that takes some stone. So good for him. Yep, I really love that call. That was great. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Illinois, though, man, that's a tough loss. It's a tough loss, you know, and, and it looked like they were getting their mojo back and that Bielema was going to pull it off and, and start to, you know, get Illinois moving in that direction. Because even I thought during the preview, I thought it was like, OK, all right, well, maybe Illinois after that win against Maryland, like shoot, like everything that I thought we, you know, and a bunch of people saw at the beginning of the season um, preseason, uh, like, well, OK, well, maybe this is it, it's going to happen now in the second half yeah. of the season. Illinois is really going to take off and. You know, it just just obviously just didn't happen. You know, not to say they can't win any more games, but also I got to no, this I gotta team. Give... This team is going to be dangerous every week. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And but I also got to give credit to Wisconsin, too, man. You know, yep, they, absolutely. And Locke, you know, he he's definitely showing, you know, he he seemed to what I was impressed with, because when his first when he first uh, came in up for taking over Mordecai, he was just he was throwing the ball a little too hard. He was he was pretty inaccurate. But yep. you saw him put touch on the ball this in this game. And that was really that was really good to see. He's definitely improved. He's calmed down. Um, and so, yeah, man, I mean, Wisconsin, obviously, they're at t- they're back at the top of the Big Ten West right now. And, you know, it's theirs to lose. Absolutely. Um. Yeah, Locke, he's a frosh too, isn't he? I think so. Yeah, that's impressive for a frosh to come in like that and play as well as he did. So good for him. Um, that definitely gives you encouragement that Wisconsin can can do well, even in Tanner Mordecai's absence. Yep. All right, with the win, Wisconsin moves to 5-2. and two. With the loss, Illinois drops to 3-5. and five. Next up, we've got the Nebraska Cornhusker 17. The Northwestern Wildcats nine total yards. Northwestern at two fifty seven to Nebraska's two forty eight. So pretty similar there. Um, the difference is that Northwestern got its yards throwing the ball, and Nebraska largely ran the ball as they always do. 
For Northwestern, Brendan Sullivan was 12 of 23 for 176 yards on 7.7 yards per attempt, zero TDs, and one pick. Anthony Tyus broke off one 39-yard run, but Northwestern wasn't able to run the ball much outside of that as they averaged just 2.1 yards per rush as a team. Bryce Kurtz led the way receiving with three catches for 96 yards, while A.J. Henning and Cam Johnson, Cam Johnson chipped in a few catches as well. For Nebraska, Heinrich Harburg was 8 of 17 for 85 yards on five yards per attempt, one TD and two picks, a QBR of just 19.3. So once again, not the best day for him passing. However, he ran the ball for 72 yards and four and a half yards per rush. This along with Emmett Johnson, 73 yards and 6.1 yards per rush led Nebraska to victory. Uh, this was a defensive ball game. Harbor got off to an awful start, getting picked on two of his first four passes. He rebounded enough from that to win, though. Nebraska's success in Matt Rule's first season is going to depend on this defense. And that much was clear, you know, in that win on Saturday. Um, Cornhuskers matched their season high with eight sacks, had their most tackles for loss in four years with 13 and held a second straight opponent under 10 points for the first time since 2010. John, eight sacks, 13 tackles for loss. That's ridiculous. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, this Nebraska defense is for real, dude. And, and as we've been saying all season, um, and, but I think really, yeah, like you said, they're going to be the ones carrying it. But offensively, you know, even though they're not able to pass the ball very well, like I said, they're at this identity that they've that they've created for themselves. It, it's working. You know, it may not work all the time against every single team, but it's working well enough that, again, this is a team that, you know, most people were leaving for dead a couple weeks ago. And now psh, they're competitive again, and they're back in the race too. I mean, the Big Ten West is wide open, wide open, and Nebraska is now back in it, and that defense has is gotten them there, and they're and deciding on an identity and running with it as as well, obviously, and and very much running with it, very um, much pun intended. <laughs> yes, pun intended. Yeah, um, but you know, Harburg. Yeah, the thing that I saw offensively, though, the difference with. Nebraska and Northwestern offensively is that they did get the big plays, you know, when it, when it was needed and Northwestern just wasn't able to come back and make it happen, you know, but I will say this when it comes to Northwestern, um, you know, Braun should be proud of what he's doing at Northwestern. This is a competitive absolutely. football team. They could have fallen apart, been absolutely awful and terrible. Like everybody was expecting them to be. And they are being, they are competitive. Like they are showing up. And they're making it difficult for other teams to to beat them. And not just that, they're better than they were the last couple of years. Absolutely. And to to have an interim staff and show improvement on the field, I mean, that rarely happens. Yeah. So that's really impressive. Um, yeah. When Northwestern pulled within eight points in the fourth quarter, the Huskers defense turned up its game another notch. And that that really impressed me, John. Four of its sacks of Brendan Sullivan, four of the eight sacks came on the Wildcats' last two possessions. Uh, quote, we go out there with the mindset on defense that we're going to win every football game, no matter what's going on with the offense, good or bad, said defensive lineman Nash Hutmaker. So I've been calling him Nash Hutmaker, but on the on the broadcast, they were calling him Hutmaker. Hmm. So I'm still I'm still unsure. I I I I have I don't either. Yeah, I think well, I've been Nash. Doing you're, Nash, we think you're a great player. He had two and a half sacks. Yes, agreed. Um, Heinrich Harburg scored that go-ahead touchdown on a three-yard run just before halftime and put the Huskers up 17-6 with a 44-yard pass to Malachi Coleman early in the fourth quarter. 
They limited Northwestern to 81 rushing yards on 39 carries, including minus five on 18 runs in the second half. So they held um, Northwestern to negative rushing yards in the second half. So that's really, really impressive. Um, that said, the Wildcats offensive line continues to be one of the worst in the country. The eight sacks allowed match the most by Northwestern since 2000. And the Wildcats have surrendered 30 sacks through seven games. Oof. For Nebraska, the Huskers, they continue to manage to win with an inconsistent offense that generated just 248 yards. But as long as that D is playing the way it is, they will have a chance most of the time to win. And yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the defense just came up with, with big plays whenever they needed a big play. Yep. Well, and, and like I said, and even Harburg was able to th- was able to throw the ball and and pass for a touchdown when he needed to make it happen. And so yeah. it's they're able to get some things going um, more often than not. And and I think as long as that continues to happen, um, they're going to be in the conversation for sure. All right, with the win, Nebraska moves to four and three. With the loss, Northwestern drops to three and four. Last up, we saved one of the more intriguing games for last. We had Minnesota 12, Iowa 10. Um, John, did we want to, before we get into the game, do we want to talk about, do we want to talk about the punt? I think we should talk about the punt first. Yeah. And then talk about the game. Okay. No. So, um, Minnesota was ahead 12 to 10. Uh, they punted the ball late in the game. Cooper DeGene, um, picked up the ball after it had, you know, after it had bounced, took it back seemingly for a touchdown, but that was called back because he made an invalid fair catch signal. So this has been a little bit of a, uh, people have been frustrated about this uh, kind of, I don't know, kind of disproportionately. Like I get that it had a big impact on the game, but uh, disproportionately, excuse me. I get that it had a big pack of the game impact on the game, but I still kind of surprised how big a deal some people are making out of this call. And I just want to talk about uh, what the referee specifically said uh, to reporters. So, Referee Tim O'Day told a pool reporter, the receiver makes a pointing gesture with his right hand and he makes multiple wave gestures with his left hand. That's really important, people. He makes multiple wave gestures with his left hand as he's pointing with his right hand. That waving motion of the left hand constitutes an invalid fair catch signal. So then when the receiving team recovers the ball, by rule, it becomes dead. That is a reviewable element of the game. We let the play run out. Then we went to review. Review shows with indisputable video evidence that there is a waving motion with the left hand. That's when these rules are applied. O'Day went on to say that while returners are allowed to point toward the ball, any waving motion renders the play dead. Any waving motion renders the play dead. O'Day consulted with the on-site replay official and collaborative replay used by power conferences and headquarters in Pittsburgh to make the ruling. So I think it's clear that this was 
the correct call. Uh, the officials said it was the correct call. The Big Ten Conference came out and said it came, officials came out and said it was the right call. Um, it's sort of agreed that this was the correct call in this game, John. So what are your thoughts on how this is? We're still talking about this two days later. Well, uh, you know, look, I understand being frustrated. And if we're the shoe were on the other foot, I would be upset and I'd want to understand and know why or how this all happened. Right. Um, <clears throat> but there has been evidence now presented through the rule book, through officials, through many different, um, you know, different alleys to make this clear to everybody that this is the way it is. Now, I understand, too, that like, OK, well, the play should have been called dead right there. But they and they let him return the ball. And and that that's I get that. You they know, should have called it dead right there. They should have called it dead right there. That was a mistake. The play just never should have happened, period. I And, and so that's what I understand the, the, the frustration. But, you know, it every single score in college football is it, it can be up for review. And so they are all reviewed. They all are. All scoring plays are reviewed. Yeah. So this was reviewed. And yes, it may have been for to see if his foot was out of bound of out of bounds, but it was reviewed and they saw that this was an issue and they had to make a call on it. And that's to me like that's just all it is. Now, if we want to talk about, you know, we, we can talk about that and we can complain about that, you know, and even though it's been proven and it's been decided officially that the correct call was made, or maybe we can talk about what the real issues are when it comes to both of these teams, frankly, because they both have a lot of issues. And that's what I frankly think should be focused on here. You know, I'm not saying that that shouldn't play a part or you shouldn't be upset about that to any degree. But at the same time, I think it's like, you know, you got to either accept this as the ruling, because let me tell you for like straightforward, this Floyd was not stolen. This was not a stolen win. This was a win fair. It may not have gone the way you wanted it to go. The call went in favor of Minnesota, but there were a lot of bad calls on both sides of the ball. The officiating was not particularly great. This just happened to go for Minnesota, but it was the correct call. So that's what I want to make clear. Yeah, I think that's what matters. What matters is that the officials weighed in after the play and said that this was the correct call and that the conference, you know, backs them up on the fact that this was the correct call. So it's frustrating when a call goes against you, but you want the right calls to be made. And in this case, the right call was made. Yep. All right. Should we get into this game? Let's get into the game. Total yards. Minnesota had 239 to Iowa's 127, John, 127 yards for Iowa. For mm-hmm. Iowa, Deacon Hill was 10 for 28 for 116 yards on just 4.1 yards per attempt, zero TDs and one pick. He had a QBR of just 10.4, which is wildly low. Um, Deacon Hill also fumbled twice on sack attempts and lost both fumbles. So it was a rough day for Deacon Hill. Caleb Johnson and LaShawn Williams could not get going on the ground, and Iowa averaged just 0.4 yards per rushing attempt. So Iowa averaged under one half yard per rushing attempt and ended up with 11 rushing yards as a team on 28 attempts. Um, Receiving wise, Deontay Vines had a big catch in the opening drive, which led to three points for the Hawkeyes. The Hawkeyes had a really nice opening drive in this game. Brian Ferentz had 
clearly schemed it up really well, as he often does. Brian Ferentz is often really good on opening drive drives. Uh, also receiving-wise, Nico Reggini had 28 yards and four catches. For Minnesota, it was only slightly better in the passing game. Ethan Kaliak-Manis was 10 for 25 for 126 yards on five yards per attempt and a QBR of 41.6. So not great, but he didn't turn the ball over, which was key. Uh, plus, his receivers had several drops. I think it's fair to say there were drops on both teams. Um, so I say both quarterbacks probably should have had about four more, three or four more catches each. Um, so that's worth noting because, yeah, the drops were were bad out there. And it was, you know, it was really windy. So you can, when it's that gets that windy, you can have drops because the ball's moving in unexpected ways. And that makes it tougher, you know, to track and catch the ball. For Minnesota, Darius Taylor and Zach Evans ran okay with 59 yards and 44 yards respectively on 3.7 and 4.4 yards per rush respectively. So Minnesota didn't run it all that well, but they ran it some, which was more than Iowa did who couldn't run the ball at all. And that made a big difference. Uh, Daniel Jackson had a fantastic day with seven catches for 101 yards on 14.4 yards per catch including a key 39-yard catch in the second half, which put Minnesota in, in range for the go-ahead field goal. Dragan Kesich had a fantastic day kicking for Minnesota. He had four field goals in five attempts, and Minnesota won at Iowa for the first time in quite a while to snap a losing streak against the Hawkeyes and win the Floyd of Rosedale game and, and bring Floyd of Rosedale uh, home to Dinkytown. So, let's see, that was... John, how did you, uh, what did you think about this game? Uh, well, I'd like to start, let's start with, with Minnesota because, um, you know, there's, there's obviously, you know, it was great. You know, Minnesota won the game as a fan. I'm very happy about that. Um, it was incredibly ugly though. I have a lot of issues, um, with, with, <laughs> with our offense, um, I have even more issues with our special teams. Um, hashtag fire Rob Wenger. Um, and I will continue to stay on that. If it ever happens, I don't I don't think it will, but I, I just that that he he is he has definitely overstayed his welcome by about six years. Um so you know, I think offensively enough was done, you know, thank goodness for Daniel Jackson. Um, he really, you know, bailed us out on a couple of those plays and, and he was, you know, part of the reason why we were able to get into field goal range. Um, yep. you know, I think our running game, you know, against a very, very good defense did pretty well. You know, it, it, it wasn't what I was hoping it was going to be, but it, you know, that defense, Iowa's defense is spectacular and they did an excellent job. Sebastian Castro is, is phenomenal. And he showed up just like we thought he would. Um, yeah, the Hawkeyes played great on defense. You have they to, absolutely you have did. to give them credit for the way they played defensively. Um, like you said, Sebastian Castro was everywhere. They were they were all over the place. They made it hard. They made it hard to throw the ball, and Minnesota, you know, had to had to lean on the run game, and the run game was not super effective either. So, yeah. So yeah, Iowa's defense played extremely well. Yeah, but I will say, you know, <clears throat> I guess like to stick with just offensively here, like I am nervous. Um, obviously for the future, just to like, you know, look forward a little bit because both Darius Taylor and Zach Evans, uh, went out at different times in the game. Um, so that's obviously going to be something to look at, uh, for Minnesota in the future here. Um, you know, that's just never good. 
because uh, no. clearly, as we saw, uh, Sean Tyler just couldn't do anything once he was once he was uh, in the backfield starting. Well, and so, Bryce Williams is out for the year too, so Minnesota yep. is just running out of running backs. Exactly. Yeah. So this is it's it's uh, it's nerve wracking when it comes to that. But now, when it comes to Minnesota's defense, they played really well. They played outstanding. I mean, incredible. Yeah, incredible play by the Gopher defense. Absolutely. Tyler Newbin was all over the place. And yes, he made some dumb, dumb mistakes and some penalties that he shouldn't have. But he was incredible. Our D line was playing great. They were getting Eastern on on the D line, man. Devin Eastern played this best game ever as in his young career. Jalen Logan Redding had his best game ever, probably. Yeah, I mean, the defensive line really showed up. Absolutely. And you saw that like once you got pre- once they got pressure on Deacon Hill, he couldn't do anything. He, he, and, and that's and once they figured that out and they continued to do that, because early on, Deacon Hill was he was completing some good passes. But once they that realized, first drive. You know, yeah. yes, <laughs> and then and then, uh, you know, so essentially, man, you know, I think Minnesota's defense won the game, um, won the game for us and Dragon Kessage's leg. So I will say the special teams. Other than Dragon Kessage is horrible, but Dragon Kessage is special, so we're very grateful to have him. Now, Iowa on the yeah, other Minnesota hand, allowed two kicks to hit the turf. Two, they yeah. they recovered them both, but at the collegiate level, at the high school level, you should not have a kickoff, a long kickoff, hit the turf ever. That shouldn't happen. It's it's just it's embarrassing. I mean, it, it really is. And I, th- I I have to believe I'm not entirely sure, but I have to believe Minnesota is at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to special teams in the Big Ten um, or damn near close. So and that bothers me, man, except for in the kicking game, except for in the kicking game. Yes. Kicking game's great. Yeah. But I and that that really bothers me and it will continue to bother me even when we do win. It will bother me. So. Not happy with that. And offense needs to get better, too. Ethan needs to get better. Uh, there's still some problems there. Um, but, you know, it, it, we'll, we'll see how that continues to go. But both, defense, I'm happy with. Both quarterbacks left some throws out there. Both Ethan and Deacon Hill had some open receivers that they missed. Um, Ethan particularly had open guys that he missed. All day. In, especially in the second half. Yeah. When yeah. they threw, when the Gophers threw the ball a little more than they did in the first half. Yeah. But um, Go ahead. Let's. So what was wild, here's a wild stat for you. Iowa had just two yards after halftime. Two. I, I, I read that as 12 the first time, and I was, telling, I was all happy telling people that, but no, Iowa had two yards after halftime. So, you know, just an unbelievable job of the Gopher defense taking away, you know, what Iowa was trying to do. Um, you know, the passing stats were relatively even. The difference in the game was that Iowa got all their passing stats early and then couldn't really throw as well after that um minnesota it happened a little bit later later in the game but the biggest difference is that iowa couldn't run the ball at all and minnesota could run the ball a little bit a little bit which was enough compared to iowa not running the ball at all um because because that iowa run game which had been so successful the last couple games was shut down by the minnesota defense Iowa's lone TD came off a drive where Minnesota was whistled for four costly penalties. So I give credit to Iowa, but Minnesota really, I mean, pretty much handed them that seven points. Yeah. And that dug the hole that Minnesota was in that they had to get out of in the second half. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, Minnesota had their scoring opportunities. I mean, they got in, 
you know, five times they got into range and five times they attempted field goals. They didn't get a single touchdown. So that's, that is frustrating that the gopher offense, um, you know, couldn't put the ball in the end zone, which has been a little bit of a problem all year, but was a much bigger problem on Saturday. Mm-hmm. But well, I'm looking, oh. Oh, go, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. You finish. Oh, I was just going to say, continuing on the stats for the gopher defense after the, after the first drive of the game for Iowa, Minnesota, Minnesota allowed just 57 yards in the final 55 plus minutes of the game. Wow. That is incredible. So that Joe Rossi de- defense was completely dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, John, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to talk, you know, cause I know everybody talks about it and harps on it and beats it to death, but like there is some, we have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, like I said, um, you know, Iowa fans are up in arms talking about the play at, towards the end of the game. Um, but that was not the last play of the game. No, and it wasn't. They had an opportunity with ample time on the clock to go down the field and score. And they did not. And they only needed a field goal and they yep. only had to go like, what, 20, 25 yards to get in field goal range? Yes. From where they were. And Iowa's got a good field goal kicker. So yeah. this was not an impossible task. It, well, it shouldn't have been. But it was. And where I come back to, and I know people talk about it all the time, and we just defended Iowa last week, um, you know, for for like them becoming a punchline. And this is not meant to be a punchline, but the reality is, is this offense and its coordinator is they are a problem. And and if that is not addressed, because to me, that is the larger issue at hand here. It's not, I, I get it, you know, the, the play that, that is controversial, but like the larger issue of this game when it comes to Iowa and losing it is that offense, period. Yeah. Let's give Justin Wally a little bit of credit for an awesome interception on Deacon Hill at the end, at the end of the game. That was pretty awesome. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So it was good. Good. He did that. But no, I agree with you. The Brian Ferentz thing is a problem. I mean, the Hawkeyes had a hundred and twenty seven yards for the day. Now the gopher defense is pretty good, but 127 yards. That is, I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw a big 10 team put up an offensive stat, like, like 127 yards for a game. That's really, really low. That's not. And the, you know, what's weird about Brian Ferentz, John is that, his first drive of the game always looks great. Yeah. I mean, he can scheme them up and he'll have, you know, pass the passing game working and he'll have a run game and a gap where you didn't expect it to go. And, and he'll just march down the field the first time down the field. And he does it against the Gophers like every year. And the first time down the field, it's great. And then after that, it kind of all falls apart, especially the last few years. And I don't understand why he's so, how he can be so good at scheming up, you know, one drive with a script, but he can't then call plays successfully for the rest of the game. I I don't know, and I think that's where you know you, we talked a little bit beforehand, I, and I agree with you that um, I think that's where most of Iowa's anger that is being directed towards Minnesota and that play call or that play, um, it's really their frustration towards. Brian Ferentz and the offense. And let's say it's irresponsible of Kirk Ferentz to suggest that they got screwed in any way. Yeah. And he has, you know, he did in his post game presser 
you know, make it seem like I think I think the reason why a lot of Iowa fans are still on this days later is because their head coach made it seem like something incorrect happened and he made it seem like the Hawkeyes had been victimized. And so just to be responsible, like it was the correct call. You know, we went over the rule thing earlier. We don't have to do that again. But, you know, Kirk Ferentz should come out with a statement and at least say, hey, you know what? I was wrong. It was the right call. Yeah. And I think that I think then that, you know, the Hawkeye fan base and some of the Hawkeye media would put this to bed. But the fact that the head coach has not come off of that of that sort of preposterous statement that, um, you know, in the postgame presser where he was implying that they got jobbed, you know, I think that's irresponsible of Kirk Ferentz is what I'm going to say. I agree. And all it is is deflecting from taking responsibility for his offensive coordinator and himself. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. All right. With the win, the Minnesota Golden Gophers go to four and three. With the loss, the Iowa Hawkeyes drop to six and two. Well, all right. John, is there anything you want to announce? That was... Uh, well, I, it was a very emotional weekend um, yes. for a lot of people. It was. And, and listen, you know, we're not trying to throw any shade. We're trying to be fair to everybody here, and and we're but we're also speaking our truth. And and um, as everybody should, have, you know, be able to weigh in and say what they want to say. But uh, on that note, um, if you do want to find us, um, if we haven't pissed you off too much, uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> you can find. Uh, we live for Saturday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Podcast Addict. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at We Live for B1G Sat. That's at We Live for B1G Sat. You can also email us, We Live for Saturday, B1G at gmail.com. We Live for Saturday, B1G at gmail.com. Send us all of your hate mail. Um, anything you want to say, well, if you want to just vent, give it to us. We're happy to listen. Yeah. Come find us on, you know, either email us or come find us on Twitter. We're happy to interact. And if you have any questions that you want addressed on a future mailbag episode, you can get those questions in now we are taking submissions. Um, but yeah, you know, it was a wild weekend, John and the big 10 and emotions were running high, but like that's, we, we, Emotions run high because we care. We care because we love. And we love this beautiful game of college football. Absolutely. Even though we all root for different teams, you know, that's something that brings us together. And I do think it's really special. This game that we all get to enjoy is, I think, the greatest game in the world. Specifically American college football. I think it is by far the greatest game in the world. I'm a little biased, but that's how I feel about it. So (laughs) to all you out there, thank you for experiencing it with us and uh riding with us we will be back in a couple days with the week nine preview episode and so get excited for that in advance and yeah i'm your co-host mike thanks for coming out and rocking with us if you made it to the minute 72 here of this podcast john you guys take care all right all right take it easy everybody (laughs) 